Um, as we turn to Zechariah 12, I just want to say by way of introduction that um, I'm not usually a half-verse preacher. I usually take a large chunk and work my way through it expositionally, as is our good Reformed uh, tradition. Uh, and I'm not usually a topical preacher. Again, usually just the, the uh, opening up of, of Scripture. But I'm going to break my own rules and do both today, both preaching on a half-verse and really on the subject. Um, I have been reluctantly drawn to this subject, but as I've studied it and prepared, uh, I do think it is a very important subject that the, the Reformed Church needs to address and consider, and good people disagree on it. So um, I hope I'm not uh, going to abuse the, the pulpit. No, I won't. But I want to bring forth the, our understanding, or at least consider our understanding, on the land of Israel. The land of Israel. And specifically from that verse, um, or rather part verse, in Zechariah 12 and 12, the land shall mourn. Now we've already been reminded in our reading that there's a lot of difficult parts to Zechariah 12, and I'm not going to address them. I'm just going to leave them for Pastor Matthew, yeah. Um, there are simpler parts and more uh, easier to understand parts, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's really the area, uh, the surrounding verses that we're going to look at. Um, it is a messianic prophecy. It is about the Messiah. Um, we can look at 12.10 and immediately see uh, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Interesting Hebrew phrase, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And we immediately can see post-New Testament days, it's clear. Um, as, as Alistair Begg always says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So here's, here's something that's really plain. It's, it's about Jesus. They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And if we skip over to chapter 13, verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And again, it's got wider implications. It's even got implications for the Gentiles ultimately as well. But here specifically, it's speaking of a, of a fountain. It's speaking of a piercing. It's speaking of a looking upon someone, him. And it's a cleansing fountain from sin. So again, plain. It's speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of the sacrifice of the Messiah. Tie it in with Isaiah 53, and you have, by his stripes we are healed. It is the substitutionary sacrifice of the Messiah of Israel that provides the fountain that is the cleansing for sin. So, all that to say, that is the context of what we read when we read of the land shall mourn. 
And so if you put the mourning into the context of that, you then also have got the sense of mourning because of sin or mourning over sin. It is a mourning in the sense of our catechism um, on uh, repentance unto life. A sinner out of grief and hatred of his sin doth turn from it unto God with full apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. But think of that. There is the, the turning. There is the grief and the hatred. There is the mourning. Involved in coming to Christ, as I trust you have been well taught, is this turning from your sin, is this penitence, is this confession, as we've had in our, in our service, is this repentance, is this grief, is this mourning. And so we have in the context of Zechariah 12, all of this in the mix of a messianic prophecy that is about Jesus undoubtedly. But what does it mean the land shall mourn? The land shall mourn. Well, again, from the context, we gain some understanding. It goes into the, the families, the house of David, the wives, the house of Nathan by their wives, Levi, families, Shimeites, all the families that are left, everyone, basically, and their wives by themselves. So there is a sense of, of an extended national mourning that is also personal. Again, we see that in the context of repentance of the people of Israel in the land of Israel. And so we've got to ask a question. Sometimes it's a useful preacher's tool to just throw a few questions at a text. question I want to ask at the text, well, was this fulfilled in Zechariah's day? Zechariah, again, it's the time of the return. It's the glorious return. It's glorious days. It's God's reviving days. And it's the building of the second temple. And it is the days of that exile returned from Babylon. Was that fulfilled then? No. Because the fountain hasn't been opened up yet. At least in terms of the messianic prophecy. Was it fulfilled in the days of Maccabees? Whenever again the intertestamental period. And where the Jews today will celebrate Hanukkah. Because there was the, the recapture of the temple. There was the setting up of the light. And there was the lighting of that. And there was sufficient oil for that. And all that story of Hanukkah. Was this the fulfillment? Was that the great revival? Was that the land morning? No it wasn't. Was it fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? Can we say that the land mourned on the day of Pentecost? Well, I, a little, perhaps to some degree, in, in some small measure. Because when Peter preached, Christ, the fountain, opened up. They were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do? And repent and be baptized. So there was... The cutting to the heart, there was the grief, there was the mourning, and there was the turning in 3,000, and we know the story. But was, was it the land shall mourn? No, not completely. And so we've got to ask the question, what does this speak of? And that's why I got us to read Romans 11. Because in Romans 11, we read of the grafting in again of the natural branches. We read of God's covenants with them and his bringing that redemption to Zion. 
This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I see Zechariah 12, 12, this little half verse, pointing to something that is divinely purposed when we don't know, but nonetheless divinely purposed as part of the redemptive story, particularly in line with Romans 11. Montgomery Boyce commenting, he says, the chapter does not speak generally about the people of God. You know, sometimes, and please don't misunderstand, but sometimes we take Old Testament scriptures, we apply them to the Gentile church, and we almost steal the verse. It, it may be applicable to us, and we may rejoice in these uh, fulfillments for us, but don't steal it off the Jewish people, where it has a relevance to the Jewish people. And so Montgomery Boyce, he says, it repeatedly stresses the names of Jerusalem and Judah, and when it talks about Israel's repentance, it does so by reference to the specific Jewish clans or tribes. So again, my um, thesis, for want of a better word, in opening up this text is that this is the redemptive plan of God for the people Israel in the land of Israel. And as I've said earlier, we're in, engaged in Jewish mission all over the world, but 42% of the world's Jewish population lives in the USA, and 45% of the world's Jewish population lives in the land of Israel. And so we can actually look at something like 87% of our mission field is in these two countries. And so I want us to think, with a lot of help from some of my colleagues in Israel, but I want us to think about the land, and specifically the land in the context of gospel. Sometimes we get on the land issues, and it's all about politics. No, 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 no. I want to speak about the land in the context of the gospel of Jesus. I have three points of application then. So if this is speaking of something that is yet to happen, something that ties in with Romans 11, the land shall mourn, there shall be an outpouring by the Spirit of God upon the inhabitants of the land. As we see in Romans 11, well, what way of application can we draw from this? Three things I want to... To, to open up before our minds. First of all, I want us to look at the extraordinary providence and prominence of the land. The extraordinary providence and prominence of the land. I have a number of quotations that I want to bring to you from my CWI colleague in Israel, David Sadak. I mentioned David uh, in the early Sunday school hour. David is an Israeli believer. Uh, he's a retired army major. 17-year service in the Israeli uh, defense in the IDF. Uh, he's been a pastor for 15 years, uh, close to, uh, of Grace and Truth Reformed Baptist Church uh, in Kanot, south of Tel Aviv. In other words, he's a military man. He's a theologian. Uh, he's well qualified uh, to speak both theologically, politically, geographically uh, on the land of Israel. And uh, as a good reform buddy, uh, I feel uh, privileged to know him, and I'm delighted to use him widely in what I'm going to bring to you today. So it's 
this is David's sermon. No, it's not quite. But it, it's, there's a lot of quotations because I think they're so, so helpful and so thrilling to hear a Reformed perspective on the land from an Israeli Jewish believer military guy. So that's, that's, that's my selling point for David. He says this, As we move forward through history to the days of the New Testament, it seems that the land comes to occupy a far less central role. Although the emphasis is not as acute as in the Old Testament, the land still has a place in God's economy in the New Testament, but predominantly as in regards to the work of the gospel. While land has an important place in history and in our lives today, he's living there in the land, those of us who belong to God set their eyes on a heavenly land, not an earthly land. Oh, how I wish many Americans would do the same as this Israeli believer. And he goes on to speak about the restoration to the land. In his sovereignty and in fulfillment of his promises, God restored the people of Israel to the land of Israel after almost 2,000 years of exile. It is in that land during the last few decades that the gospel has gone out again to the Jewish people, and many have come to faith in the promised Messiah of Israel. I do believe that the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 was part of God's redemptive plan of salvation in bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. And again, please note David's emphasis. It's gospel. It's redemptive plan. Even within the eschatological plan, the land shall mourn. And then David goes on to mention some specific things which I think we would do well to take some prayerful note of. And he says this, the restoration of the Hebrew language in the late 19th century, together with the restoration of the land of Israel in 1948, in my opinion, has paved the way for the restoration of the people of Israel. These two factors together enable the gospel to impact the people in the land. Language and land. We cannot ignore the land. I, some of my good Reformed buddies will, well, we're seeking a heavenly land. And uh, yeah, it's all nations of the world need to hear about Jesus. And sorry, there, there, there seems to be even a neglect of the people Israel and the land of Israel. God has always had a central role for land and people, but it was salvific. We, we get the emphasis wrong, but we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. In the ancient world, this little piece of real estate was at a crossroads. It, it faced the assaults of kingdoms that have come and gone. It had a prominence. The Pre, the, the, the providence of God in, in protecting that land is spectacular. And, and, and we read again in Scripture, Psalm 102, your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. <clears throat> so we want to note that, that the dust, the, the, the stones, the, the land has importance, but it pertains to the people within the land. The land is mine, saith the Lord. But we also note that in God's purposes and plans, the, the covenants, the associated covenants, were often connected with this people in the land on loan. 
And so we do need to see something of an importance of the land and the people. We cannot simply just dismiss it as unimportant just because a few crazies take crazy ideas over it. Because I often pose a question and just ask myself, why are the Jewish people still here? They should have been wiped out long ago. As I said in the Sunday school hour, why are they still here? Well, that in itself proves the providence of God, that God is, but also it proves that God is purposely caring for this particular peculiar people. Why? He didn't do that for my Scots ancestors. He gave his revelation, he gave his covenants, he gave his promises to this particular people in this particular part of the real estate of the world. Even though the earth is mine, the cosmos is his. But this particular peculiar people have been preserved when they should have been wiped off the face of the planet. What is that for? It is for salvation. It has to be. And similarly, if we come to the little piece of real estate, the land, why is it still here? Why is it not wiped off the map? What is so special about this particular piece of real estate? Well, to me, it can only be eschatological. The land shall mourn. In other words, just as God is not finished with his ancient people, he's not finished with his ancient people in the land, the ancient land. And so in our strange and providential 20th century, he brought the majority of the ancient people back to the land. And if we Bible believers see all the nations as but a drop in the bucket, then we, we, we see that he is working his purposes out. And the 21st century reality of people in land has got to be something that we deal with, something that we talk about, something that we, we discuss theologically but it has to be considered evangelically, not politically. Of course, everything in America is political. <laughs> but we got to think of this evangelically, kingdom-wise, as well as even eschatologically, with, with some care. We need to develop a supra-political mindset. We need to develop that yeah, there's all the politics that are going on, but, but God's kingdom is bigger. And we don't need to just get the right person in the White House. God is working all his purposes out as year succeeds to year. And when it comes to this little piece of real estate in the Middle East, what is Iran going to do? What is this going to do? What is this going to do? No, 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 no. Let's see what God does in this land. And so our evangelical mind has got to think non, not on the politics of the surrounding regions and what nation is going to wipe Israel off the map, but how is the gospel impacting the people in the land of Israel? Now, having said all that, please don't think that I'm disengaging from politics because everything we do in the kingdom has an effect on earth. We, we don't retreat to our hovels or our, our monasteries, reformed monasteries, where we just kind of just discuss Calvinism all day. No, we are engaged in the world. And we must engage. So don't please misunderstand me. We must engage. And so also, when we think about the political reality of the land, it is surrounded by enemies. 
six or seven million Jewish people living in this tiny little piece of land surrounded by 200 million Arabs. Not all Arabs hate the Jewish people, of course, but many of their states do. And so we need to, in a sense, stand with Israel, but only for the gospel's sake, not just because of the politics. And you see, when we obtain a biblical, not a political answer to the question of the land, then we will know, well, how are we going to bless Israel? How are we going to really stand with Israel? There are those who stand with Israel and won't evangelize Israel. Well, that's not stand, that's, that's standing by as they drop off the pit to a lost eternity. You can't stand with Israel and not bring the gospel to Israel, as some organizations are doing. If you want to bless Israel, what, is, what has Israel blessed the Gentile world with? It's Jesus. What is the greatest blessing we can bring back even to the land of Israel, it's Jesus. But nonetheless, that little piece of real estate is under attack. It's under attack from surrounding nations because the surrounding nations have a theological enmity. It's not politics. It's theology. And this is where the the leftist world hasn't got a clue when it comes to understanding these things. Because Islamic terrorism is driven by a theology that Allah is the one that must dominate everything and we must surrender. And the Gentile world must surrender. And the great Satan and the little Satan and America and Israel must surrender. And Israel lives under threat of annihilation because it's a theological problem for Islam, a country that formerly was under the domination of the Arabs, and Islam is now under the domination of the Jewish people, the God of Israel. What? That can't be. So either, and you'll find this in some of the schools in the nearby countries, Israel is not mentioned on their maps. You look at the school maps in Egypt and see if you can find Israel. They don't call it Israel. It's still called Palestine. They don't acknowledge that Israel exists. Or they will vow to wipe Israel off the map. Because that's the theological solution. Islam's theological solution to the existence of Israel is to either annihilate or ignore, most likely annihilate, Because we got to see it eschatologically. The land shall mourn. We got to see it as part of the divine drama. God's redemptive purposes for this people. And the further purposes, the greater riches of Romans 11, 12, upon their acceptance of the Messiah. So, initially, we need to see the the, the extraordinary providence of God pertaining to this land and the prominence of this land on the world. Why Why is it up there? It's always up there. It's always the thing that's debated at the United Nations and how many resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. 
There's a prominence to it. We've got to reckon with that. The second one I want to raise by way of application, though, is really much more pertaining to the gospel. I want us to look at the evangelical presence and proclamation in the land. And you see, this again is something that the American church really has forgotten or neglected or is really care, not really interested. But it thrills me. It thrills me that in 1948, there were 12 Jewish believers in the land of Israel. 12 in 1948. And in 1968, the 12 became 50. And in 1998, the 50 became 5,000. And today, there's some 30,000 Jewish believers, Israelis, in the land. There's a, a mini revival happening in the land of it. No, there's seven million more to go. But in terms of the 12 to 30,000, and instead we here in the U.S. are all fascinated by Middle East politics and Islamic polemic and the third temple prospects. Oh, they're going to find the red heifer. And you, did you hear that they're getting all the priestly vestments, vestments all ready and they're going to build the third temple? And We're not hearing about the gospel in the land. The evangelical presence and proclamation in the land. That's why I want to tell the good story. That's why I want to tell the churches that God is sovereign. He's working the purposes out, and the land shall mourn. Well, let's put some flesh on the, on the bones of those numbers, and let's tell a little bit of the evangelical presence. And I'm doing it really by telling a little of our own story. There's a bigger story, of course, but our own story of the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Jews. We were in the land in 1920s. We had actually, we had an evangelical presence there, I'm told, from 1914. It was in British-controlled Palestine. And a Jewish missionary by the name of Mr. Joseph, and he built a large mission house at the foot of Mount Carmel in Haifa. And that mission house would uh, later open a bookstore, and it would be on... Hageffen Street, and so again, as I shared with the Sunday School, our publishing house in Israel is called Hageffen Publishing. And that property was later gifted to the British Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Jews in the late 19-teens, 1915-1918. A young Israeli, Shabtai Rohol, joined us in 1919, assisting Mr. Joseph in a medical clinic. And again, mission was done a lot in those days through medical work. And so we were engaging in medical mercy mission towards the Jewish people in the land in 1919, 1920s. And then we got on to books and spreading of good literature as part of our ministry. Gospel witness, gospel presence, gospel proclamation. Folks, let's get excited about these things. Instead of Islamic polemic and rhetoric, these diversions, and as I put up in the Sunday school, are the distractions. Take us away from the one thing that is needful, the one thing that we need to be asking, what is happening about the kingdom in the land of Israel? What is the cause of the gospel? How is that growing in the land of Israel? Instead of end time speculation. When we were engaged in this in the 1920s, it's mercy ministry for gospel ministry. It's literature ministry for gospel distribution and gospel proclamation 
and Christian discipleship. And as I said again in the Sunday School Hour, we initiated a project of translating the ancient Bible, the ancient Hebrew Bible, into modern Hebrew so that a new and younger generation of Israelis could read their scriptures in their own modern tongue because biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew is kind of like reading Chaucer. I don't know if any of you have studied Chaucer in English. Okay, well, that's the difference between biblical Hebrew and modern Hebrew. They, they, they kind of simplified things in the modern Hebrew and obviously used some modern words, but it's not accessible to the general populace. So we were engaged in translating for the purpose of gospel distribution and proclamation. And as again, I said in the Sunday School Hour, we've translated Sinclair Ferguson, Matthew Henry, John MacArthur, John Piper, Jim Packer, Joel Beakey, Ligon Duncan, classics by Bunyan, Clavin, Calvin, and Flavel. And just very recently, the first book on expository preaching in modern Hebrew. Julius Kim preaching the whole counsel of God. That's being translated into modern Hebrew. Children's books, as was said earlier. Children's books, parenting books, shepherding a child's heart in modern Hebrew. Young, believing Jewish families are teaching their young Israeli children the stories of Jesus in the land of Jesus. I want to hear far more of that than silly Middle East politics. Well, let me give you some more quotes from David Zadok. There are three seminaries in Israel that offer bachelor and master level degrees. The largest of these is the Israel College of the Bible, and David's on the board of that, where Jewish, Arab, and overseas students study side by side. By means of these academic institutions, the body of Messiah in Israel is training the future leaders of the land. The Israel Education Forum, IEF, was established three years ago with the goal of promoting evangelical education among both Jews and Arabs in Israel. And for almost two decades, the pastors and elders from local congregations have gathered together two or three times a year to study, pray, and discuss relevant issues facing the church in Israel. An informal gathering of believers at Pentecost has been organized annually for many years. 1,500 to 2,000 people gather for fellowship and the chance to see friends from all over the country in an informal setting. The land shall mourn. The church in Israel is recognizing her own calling. We're feeding her. We're helping her. We're assisting her. The land shall mourn. Now, our time is too short for me to give you a full evangelical assessment, but I want to give you a taste of it for the happier things, because our news is filled with unhappy things, and particularly even pertaining to the land of Israel. I want us to hear about the gospel realities. I want to hear about evangelical growth in the land. I want to hear about the spread of telling Jewish people about Jesus. That warms my heart so much the more. One of my current missionaries in Israel, and again, uh, please read the literature. Uh, that's our, our international magazine. Please read the literature, and you'll hear stories of our Israeli missionaries. He he, he spends much of his time in the rehab center because Israel is not really a very holy land. It's a very unholy land with a lot of modern secularism and a lot of wasted lives, empty lives. Well, the land shall mourn, and they're, and they're mourning in the rehab center because he's sending us images of, of this guy and that guy weeping 
and coming to faith in Jesus. Another one of our missionaries has given evangelistic bus tours around various sites, and he's telling them all about Jesus. These are Jewish people. Holocaust survivors are hearing of Jesus. The land is not enough for them. They need the Lord, and they're hearing about the Lord. The land shall mourn. So we're seeing the, the extraordinary providence and prominence, the evangelical presence and proclamation. Finally, I want us to briefly just look at the eschatological problem. You need to do that. But the eschatological problem and prospects. I repeatedly say when I go to your church or other churches, theology drives missiology. You get your theology wrong and your missiology will be all over the map. And so eschatology will also impact missiological and theological priorities. And you see, if your end time chart has the rebuilding third temple, uh, you'll have a fascination for finding the red heifer and getting all the priestly garments and, and, and seeing, are they going to really rebuild on that very disputed piece of land? If your end time position is for that, that's what you will be thinking about. That's what you'll be reading about. That's what you'll be praying for. If your end time position is for a rapture, followed by Israel's salvation, then your present interest is really not in evangelism. Because it's not their time. You know, we're all going to be taken out of here, and then, and then it's going to be Israel's time, and, and blah, blah, blah. I heard one pastor, I was in the congregation of a mega church, and, and this pastor preached on Romans 11. It was a great sermon on Romans 11, and he really did it quite well until he said, but of course we know it's not Israel's time. And I'm thinking, tell that to the apostle Paul. <laughs> when he went across his missionary journeys, hey, Paul, don't bother. Don't bother to see Shmuley and, and uh, you know, all the friends at the synagogue. Don't bother. It's not their time. What kind of theology, what kind of eschatology is that? If, you're, if your eschatology is for a rapture, well, then, then we just better batten down the hatches until we get all taken out of here. And one bright morning when the sun is shining, I'll fly away. I'm going to sing that one. Okay. If your eschatology is in all these things, you see, it drives your missiology. If your eschatology has uh, such a, a love for Israel, oh, we love Israel. There's a philo-Semitism that has such a love for Israel. We don't, we don't share the gospel with them because, because they're okay. They're God's chosen people. And you see no need of evangelism. Freddie Mercury used to sing, well, I'm giving away my age and also giving away my musical taste, but uh, Freddie Mercury used to sing, too much love will kill you. It, it did him, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> Philosemitism, too much love, can be damning to Israel because we don't want to share the gospel with them. Sharing it becomes either unnecessary or insensitive. That kind of too much love, that's alive and well in the church. Any eschatology which negates or diverts from evangelism is problematic eschatology. The problem, the eschatological problem. And I will do battle with the dispensationalist and the ultra-reformed who see no interest in the land or the people. Well, let me end with an alternative. 
Not something new. In fact, I've repeatedly said it's biblical, it's historic, it's God's eschatological and time redemptive purposes for the worldwide people of Israel and also for the people in the land. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the house of David, the house of Nathan, the house of Levi, the Shimeites, and all the families that are left. David Zadok, he says, the day is coming and is approaching fast, that the word of God will come forth once again from Zion, and Israel will fulfill her prophetic role in declaring the salvation of God to all people, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Do you get what he's saying there? He's saying that the day is coming when God will pour out such a, a, a spirit of grace that the land will mourn and that the, that the land itself will be revived and that revival will impact the world. In a sense, it's not Christian witness to Israel. It's Israel's witness to the Gentiles. And that's what you see in Romans eleven twelve 12 and Romans eleven fifteen. 15. And we haven't time to take up those verses, but note them. Romans eleven twelve, 12, Romans eleven fifteen. Because it's not the end just Israel coming to faith and God grafting in again the natural branches, but there is an explosion of gospel realities even out of Israel. Can you believe that? One of the most moving experiences for me was hearing David Zadok close in prayer at one of our international conferences. This is way back in 2012, and uh, we were all gathered together for conference, and he just he rounded out the conference, and he simply prayed. He was, he was praying upon praying blessing upon Eretz Yisrael. He was praying blessing upon the land of Israel, but he was praying that blessing would come upon the Gentiles, the greater riches, as a result of life from the dead, riches coming upon Israel, upon the land. And again, I want to end with just a couple of quotations. In Romans 9 through 11, this is David again. Paul writes very clearly about the faithfulness of God and his promises to Israel and declares that all Israel will be saved. But before this happens, Zion will again publish the word of God to the world at large, a time when the gospel will go forth from Israel. The destiny of the people of Israel was tied to the land of Israel, but God's foremost interest was and remains the people not a piece of real estate, no matter how valuable it may be. Just as Jesus said the Sabbath was created for man and not man for the Sabbath, so the same principle can be related to the land. God did not create men so that they could occupy the land. We all hear about occupied territories. God did not create men so that they could occupy the land, but land was created and given to men in order to fulfill their call and role. Land was never an end in and of itself, but a means to achieve the goal. And the goal has always been the redemption of God's people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. David's focus as a Jewish believer in the land of Israel is how can we Jewish believers now fulfill our life in the land of promise? And his answer is evangelical proclamation and eschatological expectation and to which we must say, Amen and Amen. Preach the gospel and await the mercy of God falling upon Eretz Yisrael. The land shall mourn. May it be so. May it be so soon.
Let's pray together. Our Father, the passages of Scripture of Zechariah are complex and somewhat confusing. And yet the main things are clear. A fountain, one who is pierced, cleansing for sin, and mourning as a result. And what we pray, gracious God, for the land of Israel, and in particular, obviously, the people of the land, we pray also for the land of the United States, not only as six million Jewish people live here, but 330 others. And so we pray, Lord, for the 330 million that live here in the U.S., that also in your grace and mercy and providence in these confusing days, we may know your mercy in wrath, right, rightly, rightly receiving wrath. In wrath, remember mercy. And pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. May even this land mourn over our sins, which are many, and seek the face of God afresh. And God, in your grace and mercy, turn us. Turn us unto you. And grant us to know your kingship over all the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.